hello and welcome to the Long Game Podcast. I'm your host, Mehdi Yakubi, and this is the Long Game Podcast. In each episode, we explore the ideas, technologies, and businesses that will help us overcome the challenges of our time. The episode features long-form conversations with tech industry leaders, scientists, entrepreneurs, and thinkers. Some guests will be well-known, others will be soon, but they all share a profound similarity. They have demonstrated unusual insight and see today's challenges with a unique lens. When I'm not recording podcasts, I'm building Lifetizer, a product to help people optimize their blood glucose levels for better health, improved energy levels, and optimize longevity. And I sent a weekly email newsletter called The Long Game. I hope you enjoy the show. My guest today is Robert Miller. Robert is a friend of mine. We share a lot of the same interests. He writes an excellent newsletter about business, data, and emerging technologies in healthcare. He is an expert on crypto, blockchain, and all things related to healthcare, and he's a great thinker. He studied economics at the London School of Economics, and he is currently building a better healthcare system at Consensus Health, a spin out from an internal consensus team. We start the conversation discussing why so many people from the crypto world are now interested in biotech and longevity. Then, we talk about internal motivation and social media. After that, we cover health optimization and we discuss the idea of a Strava for health. Then, Robert explains the idea behind prediction markets and how we might use them in the future. We also touch on the problems of the funding of scientific innovations and e-rooms law. We finish the conversation talking about philosophy and why Robert loves Kierkegaard. Please enjoy my conversation with Robert Miller. Hello, Robert, and uh, welcome to the Long Game Podcast. Hey, Mitty. Thank you so much for having me. I'm a huge fan of the work that you've been doing on your newsletter, so I am honored to be here today on your podcast. Well, thanks. Thanks so much. We uh, we met on Twitter like a few months ago and uh, it's been crazy because we read the same things, we have the same interest and we had a lot of uh, conversations over the phone. Uh, all, always very good conversations. So I was thinking we should definitely do an episode of, of the podcast with you. Yeah, it's a shame that uh, so many people haven't been able to hear our private conversations. So excited <laughs> to have a public one. And it, it is pretty funny yeah. that I'll read something and then discover that you read it as well. Kind of uncanny. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Crazy coincidences. So I wanted to uh, to start maybe with the um, with the idea of uh, bio meets crypto. You know, there is this uh, this kind of thing that I that I remarked is that a lot of people interested in in crypto start to also become interested in in biotech and especially longevity. And I want you to have uh, your your thoughts on on why is that happening and um, why is that happening to to you maybe. Mm. Yeah, it's a good question. And uh, as someone that sort of spans both worlds, I've observed that these communities are way more similar than they realize, and they share a lot of the same values. So this is one way to look at it, why there are all these crypto people getting into longevity, is that uh, they share the same values of focusing on the individual, of giving access uh, to everyone of previously limited domains. 
you know, crypto wants to let anyone create their own currency in their basement, but uh, bio, or at least some parts of bio, maybe maybe biohacking or, or biopunks, uh, want to give anyone the ability to edit genes in your basement or like create your own organism. Uh, crypto is rejecting the notion that money must be made in a central bank and biohacking or biopunks uh, are rejecting the notion that science has to be done in, in big corporate labs or, or big labs or academia. You know, everyone should be enabled to participate in the scientific process, just as everyone thinks in crypto that you should be able to verify um, money supply and, and participate in that process as well. So I think there's these shared values at the core of both communities. It's, it's not surprising that they're bleeding over into each other. And more broadly, I think uh, folks that are interested in crypto are oftentimes technologists. And I think Balaji once said that uh, the ultimate goal of technology should be life optimization. If you take the premise that technology is turning scarce resources into abundance, then time is the most scarce resource that we have. And we should try to make that into uh, an abundant resource, which you know, naturally following from that, that um, premise is the conclusion that we should try and extend our lives. Uh, and th- th- those are the two things that I would point to, the shared values and you know, at the root of crypto is, is technology and a lot of technologists. Yeah, a lot of things I want to explore uh, right uh, in, in what you just said. And especially the, the, the idea that science right now is really centralized. So you have these big universities, uh, people need to apply for grants. Uh, so it's a really complicated process. And we start to see uh, people working on, on decentralizing this process. For example, uh, the folks at Molecule that you, uh, that you introduced me to. And I think, I think this is really, really smart what they're doing because uh, right now there are a lot of problems with, the, with scientists spending so much time waiting to get funded. And we, we, we just, this, this might be one of the reasons why the, the progress is, uh, is becoming slower and slower. And if we want to really have major innovation and major progress in the field of, of biotech, maybe the crypto way is the way, or maybe a different way is the way, a way where more people can participate in the field. And that's what we start to see. So uh, I find it super interesting. Yeah. And I mean, think about the differences between how the crypto world works and how academia works today. In academia, you perform an experiment, you find some novel insight from data, and you keep it to yourself for maybe months, sometimes years, depending on how long it takes for your paper to get accepted. But in crypto, you think of something cool, you write some code, you post it on GitHub for the rest of the world to see, and for the rest of the world to contribute and, and build on as well. It's like a much more open and collaborative process. In science, you submit a paper for peer review and your peers are able to strike it down. Uh, but in crypto or, or maybe open source technology more broadly, you submit your technology for peer review on GitHub and peers are able to either build on your system or, or change it by actually contributing code. I think it's not a surprise that we're seeing a lot more of a, a quick progression within crypto and, and software than it is science, given these incentives and, and the different structures. Exactly. That, that That's actually very, very right what you're saying. But the question and maybe the difference between the two fields, 
is when it comes to regulations, because uh, of course there are a lot of regulation in the world of finance, and uh, crypto had to overcome all these regulations. But maybe the regulation in the world of biotech are even like even bigger and even more uh, more of a constraint. So, how do you think that uh, the the field of biotech, with the learnings of the crypto field, could uh, do something about that? Like when you see that. Uh, to uh, to get uh, if you're working on a new drug if you're developing a new a new therapy you need to go through years and may, sometimes billions of dollars to get it uh, approved by the FDA and it's it's really a major problem because uh, in the end so many uh, therapies aren't being developed because of this uh, of this funding problem and because of this because of the fact that you need to get it approved by by the FDA a, a process that takes very very often a long time so how do you think that we could uh, we could find a solution to that i mean one solution is to change the overall structure and the incentives like we were just talking about make science more collaborative uh create you know ways and, and mechanisms that would incentivize people to share data more to um share patents more uh, th- this may have some sort of impact on how quick new molecules get get to market. I think you know, another lesson that could be taken is if you are really confident that you found something uh, incredible, but that the state or, or maybe um, the powers that be are, are going to stifle it, then you could become like Satoshi and uh, publish all of your information pseudonymously. Of course, in the world of um, bio and new drugs, this would take an incredible amount of uh, evidence in order to, to get it into the mainstream. But I mean, the reason why crypto is a thing at all is because I think uh, the original founder of Bitcoin didn't have their name uh, attached to it, and we still don't know who they are. And so there's no way for uh, regulators to clamp down on, on the founder because of that. So this might be one lesson. Maybe we need more pseudonymous or anonymous research so people can really be pushing boundaries, of course, within uh, keeping good ethics in practice as well, right? Another lesson might be taking um, some of the the crowdfunding mechanisms that have come up in, in crypto and applying them to new molecules, new types of therapies, and have more uh, bottom-up direction of science too. In crypto, it's it's uh, not an uncommon thing for a project to raise tens of millions of dollars. A little bit less common today than it was in 2017, 2016. But uh, you know, I'd, I'd like to see more individuals crowdfunding um, clinical trials for therapies that you know there may not exist incentives for big pharma companies to to create today, or for folks that think they have a really interesting idea that might go against. Uh, whatever the status quo is or, or the current thinking of a research paradigm uh, to try and fund that research themselves. Yeah, there are, are a couple fields where we just haven't really made any progress in them um, for a few decades. And in part, I think that's due to new ideas getting stifled because they're not a part of whatever the current paradigm is. Uh, and this could be broken if we can break the um, the hold that uh I think the grant structure has on exactly. uh, yeah, new, some some of how these therapies are funded. 
Exactly, yeah. That's uh, Jason Crawford who uh, wrote extensively on, on the topic of uh, the problems of funding in in science, and this is exactly what, uh, what what he's saying. You know, basically, when you're when you're building a startup, you can go and see 10, 20, 30 VC funds, and you only need one yes. You know, if one VC understands your vision, understand what you're building, then he's going to fund you. You're going to build something, and you're going to have an opportunity to prove what you were saying. When you're a scientist. Very often in, in the country where you're going to be in, you're going to have uh, one institution that, that, that that's uh, organizing all, the, all of the funding. So if they say no, they, you don't have the money and you cannot pursue your, your work. So it's, it's a very, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a huge problem. And uh, it was, I think, Patrick Collison who, um, who suggested that we split all of the big uh, funding institution in multiple different funding institutions. So that, and those institution those institution would uh, work and uh, grant the fund in different ways. So that if you're a scientist or if you're working on a very uh, ambitious project, maybe you're gonna get nine no's and you're gonna get one yes, and this could lead us to to progress more and and innovate more. And I, I think comparing it to the way that venture capital works is informative too, uh, and the way that oftentimes I think science works today is you're asking your competitors what they think of your idea. And the analogy to that in venture capital would be is asking your potential competitors if they should invest in you. Uh, and because of these peer review structures, you can have ideas shot down that fall outside of the current dogma that may end up working. Like um, there's a, a great article in stat, I can send it to you and you can link it in the description of your podcast on how there's basically a cabal of people running, um, uh, dictating what kind of research was done in Alzheimer's for decades. And we really have not seen any progress within that domain at all. And if we exactly. were to be able to fund research in a different way that uh, a small group of people couldn't direct it so easily, then you might have more uh, ideas that fall outside of the stagnant status quo get funded and we might see more progress. For sure. And 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 one thing is crazy. Like I was exploring the work of uh, of um, Richard Isaacson, who's working on Alzheimer's prevention, and it's really crazy to see the the, sci the scientific community uh, around Alzheimer really become crazy that he even mentions the word prevention. So it shows you that sometimes scientists just do not accept uh, some things, and and it really shows that they. They cannot imagine that people are going to work on on different ways to address a problem, and and that's a huge problem. Like, uh, you know, the the half life of scientific fact is forty five years, so you cannot you cannot expect to uh, to 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 know a certain thing for sure. Like things will change, and what we take right now for granted, and and what we are uh, completely uh, sure about may change in uh, in a few years so we always have to 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 keep uh, an open mind regarding uh, regarding science in general there's a, a great tweet from a palladium magazine the other day that was like you an established scientist i've worked carefully within established frameworks to advance our knowledge incrementally but we need more research and then isaac newton who's a noted weirdo here, I've used my math to describe gravity and prove my own strange metaphysical heresies. And by the way, on the side, I've been studying secret Bible codes. And the sort of point was, is that intellectual progress is driven by these odd people who have weird interests, uh, again, and maybe grievances against normal society and 
oftentimes exactly. wrong about a lot of things, but when they are right, they really move the needle forward. Like Isaac Newton and gravity uh, and all of this weird Bible code stuff. That's it. That's the point of uh, the Hereticon by uh, Mike Solana. I think he's, uh, he's organizing every year uh, a conference where he invites all of the people, the, the heretics of, of science, basically, the people that no one uh, never invites. Because, you know, in those hundred heretics of, of science, 99 are going to be uh, wrong. Like people who say that uh, Earth is flat, this kind of thing, you know. And it's easy to dismiss, say, this is just stupid thing. It cannot be true. And and 99% of the time is going to be true. P these people are going to be wrong. But you want to go for this 1% that's going to really bring a, a major leap in, in what we are able to do in science. And it's really about accepting to be confronted with people that say things that are wrong or think in a different way, to be able to have this 1% where the person just understands something that other people do not understand. Yeah, and I think there's also a lesson there for yourself personally, like as an individual Am I willing to think so differently and uh, am, I, am I willing to be wrong 90% of the time if 10% of the time I can be uniquely insightful and really move the needle in a significant way? And I think that's a really hard thing to, to live up to, actually. Th that's really hard. And there's the question of uh, asymmetric bets, uh, I feel. It's uh, in those moments when, when you're in the 1% uh, of the case where you are right and uh, everyone say that you're wrong, that's that's the moment where you can really get uh, a tremendous return on on the fact that you were right. But then, of course, on a personal level, it's it's really hard to go your whole life and uh, having everyone around you say that that you're wrong about something. Yeah, this is maybe jumping the the gun a little bit, but one one of the things I, I have remarked and talked to you about before uh, has been how I think we need to put more emphasis on the inwardness and, and sort of the inward motions that great entrepreneurs make as opposed to just their outcomes. Like I think when we say uh, good things about Elon Musk or we praise Elon Musk or, or maybe Steve Jobs or something, we should be noting the great anxiety and doubt that they went through to pursue their visions and their ideas uh, against all popular notions. Uh, and I think that is maybe more important than the actual outcomes that they have is that they're able to sit with such anxiety and doubt for so many years in order to make their beliefs come true. And if we did that, we would see more people pursuing those 10%, you know, uniquely insightful ideas and be willing to sit with uh, being wrong 90% of the time. Exactly. And and that's actually a very, very important question because there's a lot of also of survivorship bias, you know, like uh, people praise those people, uh, those uh, Elon Musk and Steve Jobs, and, and they don't see all of the, the other ones that failed. So it's really hard to understand what, what are the, the, the things that you can really try to, uh, to replicate or try to, uh, to get inspiration from. And what are the other parts that were just plain luck you know and something really was um, i found something super interesting regarding these uh, these outliers is the idea that the genius and the fraud sometimes there's a thin line between the two and it was uh, i believe bethany mclean who wrote about uh, elon musk and she documented all of the moments in which he uh, lied about the numbers of tesla for example at the beginning mm -hmm. and he 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 made it, you know, like in the end it worked for him. 
but there are some other people that did the same thing, but uh, they failed. And in the end, they are frauds. So the line between the the, the genius and, and the frauds is very thin. And uh, we also need to be, uh, to be aware of that. Yeah, I agree. And I, I like to think on the internal fortitude that that would take. Like, are you willing to put your reputation on the line to, to lie for a goal that you think is, is worth lying for? Like uh, you're bringing electric cars into the world or, or going to the moon or, or bringing a new product into the world, in, in the case of Steve Jobs. And are you willing to sacrifice every penny that you have to pursue a goal that you know, Elon himself has said he was nearly certain that it would fail? Like that takes a, a lot of internal strength that I think is often uh, looked over. And he did that for a decade. Uh, we should focus much more on this internal fortitude than we should the outcomes. That's that's the problem of social media. You know, it, it overexposes us to success and underexposes us to the way to get there. You know, it's like you, you don't see the the Elon in that's going to be the, the next Elon in 10 years, you don't see it now because you only see Elon tweeting and you see him with the massive success that he has, multi-billionaire, and you only you only see that. You know, you don't see uh, the the coming one, the next, the, 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 the new generation. And that's a problem because uh, people get wrong um, the wrong expectation. Instead of focusing on, on the input, on the, 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 the fact that, you know, the, the need to have a mission, to have a goal the, that he wanted. For example, in the case of Elon, like he has this, this insane drive to, to go to Mars. And that's what's important. Uh, the, the, the other parts of, of his celebrity are, are much less important and we should uh, focus much less on those. Yeah, I agree. Um, judging actions by their outcomes is, is a generally bad thing. We should focus more on the process. There's a, a quote by exactly. that I like, which is... Um, Whoever has learned to be anxious in the right way has learned the ultimate. I like this framing because it doesn't imply some end state, some achievement specifically that you need to strive for, but instead a state of being and a way of living, one that doesn't skirt from anxiety or negative feelings, but learns to harness them in the right way. For Kierkegaard, anxiety was the possibility of possibility, and this mere prospect was enough to make us dizzy. I like this framing because it recognizes that we feel anxiety only because we are humans with agency, only because we have possibilities, and that our futures are not predetermined, but instead they are determined by our actions. And this this mere uh, prospect that our futures are determined by our actions is what makes us anxious. So our task as humans is to learn to deal with anxiety in the right way, and doing so is central to us living up to our potential. And that's so true. There's something else I wanted to uh, to touch on uh, with you. Uh, it's because, of course, there is the work in biotech for longevity, but then there is uh, what what we can do right now. So the the, the question of health optimization and w- how do we get the most out of the technology that already exists. So uh, the idea of uh, the quantified self and uh, and what we can currently do with the wearables that we have. I'm curious, uh, how do you think about uh, this question? Well, I think about it personally as um, ramping up different levels. You know, I started with my Uru ring in, to try and get an early indication of whether I had COVID-19 or not and to improve my sleep as well. And then as I um, 
feel like everybody else was stuck inside my home. I developed a running habit and I quickly found that I really enjoyed watching my resting heart rate go down as I got more and more fit. And this became like a, a game for me. You know, there was a level that I was tracking and I just enjoyed seeing my graph go down and to the right. It was my um, aha moment where I finally understood what quantified self was and what the value of tracking and optimizing my health was. And I think this idea of turning health and optimization into games in some shape or form, it's, it's not a new one necessarily, but I think it's unsolved and it's, it's really powerful. And we've talked in different contexts, yeah. some, some other um, like multiplayer games, Strava for Health, for example. Exactly, exactly. We, talk, we talked about this, about this uh, at length actually. And, and it's something that I'm, uh, that I'm thinking about a lot because uh, as you know, we're building Lifetizer with, uh, with my co-founder. And uh, so it's, uh, it's a solution to help people optimize their blood glucose levels. But the long-term vision is, uh, is, to create the Strava for health, you know, it's uh, because you see that uh, how, how complex is, is health and it, it re it's really um, something that you want to have a broad understanding of. If you only, for example, if you only try to optimize your sleep, you're not going to understand it so well. Like, for example, when you start wearing a, an Oura ring, you have data, but what do you do with it? Uh, you know, I'm tracking my sleep right now. And I don't get uh, actionable insights. It's really hard to go from the data to the actual uh, meaningful change. Yeah. Did you have the same experience here on the, yeah. the fact that you know data is is not is not the, the final answer? Okay, you have the data. You see that you had a good or a bad night, and then and then what? Yeah, I think for me the first moment, the aha moment that I had when like this all makes sense, and then I had a lot of motivation to improve it was with my resting heart rate and, and running. And then after I saw that, um, you know, very viscerally, I felt that I could make changes to my lifestyle and then feel better and see that come up in the data as well. I started taking a more active approach with my sleep too. I don't think actually just having the data uh, did very much for me, especially because your sleep data is sort of all over the place and it's kind of hard to make sense of. As opposed to resting heart rate, which is just one thing, it's pretty straightforward, uh, at least in my head. So when um, I realized I could take action, see it come up in my data, I wanted to replicate that with my sleep too. So I started tweaking things. I would sleep in a slightly different way or uh, eat earlier in the day or exercise in the morning, um, wear a night mask. And I have a big old spreadsheet where I will record these things and then on a weekly basis, go back and see what changes have helped. And now I think I've gotten into sort of a routine where I no longer need to be testing out different hypotheses here or there. Um, but this was definitely like an, an active thing that I had to do uh, and needed the internal motivation to do myself instead of just some software telling me, you know, run this experiment, do this or that. Although that would have been you know, tremendously helpful to have. Exactly. That's that's also my experience. Uh, you can try things. You can, uh, you know, you have a spreadsheet. I also have a spreadsheet when when I try uh, new things for for uh, my health. But it's really hard to 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 organize it. And and I and I can understand people who uh, who say it's too complicated. Uh, I'm just getting the data, but I cannot do anything with the data. We really need uh, people working in health optimization. Really need to uh, 
to get better at uh, guiding people in their self-experimentation uh, protocols. You know, it's like, uh, you're going to try this, uh, we're going to organize it for you, you're going to just have to uh, record, for example, one thing per day, it's going to be very easy. That way, you can get more and more people uh, in their self, self-optimization self uh, journey because otherwise it's going to remain something very niche and it's never going to get uh, a broad uh, adoption. Don't you think? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And this this um, maybe one of the places where this intersects with Strava for Health, but I think what would be great is if you had a community of people around you, a small group that were on this journey as well and could share what is working for them uh, what they did last night, what their latest stats are, where they are in their journey. And uh, having this little little community, I think, could be a really powerful thing. Personally, it's been it people um, that I know just over text or some folks on, on Twitter as well. But, you know, there's a, a great opportunity for someone like Lifetizer to build an application that would make this functionality native. It is, it is. And I, and I agree with you 100% on the fact that uh, if you want to really help people get better health for the long term, you have to put community at the center of it. Because you can do something for a few weeks, but you have to enjoy it. If Here we're talking about long term, so we're talking about years or even more, like decades. It, it's just the idea that people are going to start a new lifestyle and, and stay, you know, and, and keep at it. So if you want that to happen, it's not just a solution that's going to solve a problem. It has to be a movement, uh, a new way of life. And for that to happen, you, you necessarily need uh, a community, a strong community where people share things with each other and just have this, uh, this sense of belonging. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, we're social creatures uh, and it will only help people to improve their health more if they have folks around them cheering them on. And then the other incentive of you wanting to, uh, to do a good job for the status that it entails too. Well, talking about incentives, uh, another topic we we've been talking uh, about a lot is uh, prediction markets and, and especially prediction markets uh, for uh, health optimization purposes. So, um, I'm curious, uh, you know, I know that you talked about it uh, a lot. So I'm curious, how do you see uh, these two different fields come together in a, in a new one, basically? Well, we, we should lay some context out for those of you that don't know. Uh, prediction market is a market where people can buy predictions. You, you probably could have guessed that, but... Uh, Anyone can pose a question about an event to a market, uh, and then others can wager on the outcome of that question, depending on what they think will happen. And the event in question could be anything, so long as there's, uh, so long as you can describe it in um, a concrete way. So, for example, there are many prediction markets for who will be elected president of the United States in 2020. Uh, and a couple weeks ago, there were prediction markets for um, when Trump would get out of the hospital. And then you can get even more specific. So I've seen prediction markets before with, with a couple thousand dollars on them on uh, the question of whether it would rain within a specific place at a specific time. So you just need a question to pose to the world and preferably a yes or no one. And then others can bet depending on 
what they think the outcome of that question is. And whenever a prediction market expires, like when the election happens, for example, if you've bought um, yes shares and the answer to the question was yes, then those yes shares become worth a dollar. If you bought no shares and the answer is yes, they become worth zero dollars. You lose your money. Uh, And conversely, no shares are worth one dollar when the answer ends up being no and, and yes shares are not worth anything. So the, the ultimate payoff depends on whether um, the event in question occurs or not. And what this lets people do is stake money depending on what they think the outcome is. And by folks having skin in the game, you are able to come to uh, a better approximation of what the probability of an event um, is going to be. So there's been some uh, some literature, it's, it's like a disputed question, but There's some literature that shows that prediction markets are better at predicting who becomes president of the United States than polling is, for example, uh, because folks have skin in the game. And uh, prediction markets take all this uncertainty, different people with different information, and they're able to take it into and and make it a a single probability event. So I've thought about using prediction markets for research or for health optimization before. So instead of asking folks, whether Joe Biden is going to become president in 2020, you could ask, will Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine uh, be approved before December of 2020? Or even you know, more granular, will their COVID-19 vaccine demonstrate adequate immunogenicity, I think that's how you pronounce it, in uh, a specific clinical trial? And that would let folks answer the question of whether or not they think um, the the vaccine was going to get approved. And one of the interesting incentives that this creates is if you can generate new information about an, an event that would affect the probability of that event happening, you can make money off of it by buying, buying shares accordingly. So a researcher could monetize their work by performing an experiment and then buying shares in a prediction market according to the results of their experiment. And then when they released the results of their experiment, the market would move, um, you know, according to whatever the results said. So it's this really interesting way of um, incentivizing both positive and negative results, just incentivizing more people performing more experiments. And then, uh, you know, lastly, touching on the health optimization aspect of this, you might have specific prediction markets tied to people's uh, biomarkers or, or their um, personal statistics too, right? So my resting heart rate um, was going down for quite some time and, and then it's sort of plateaued since I'm running less than I have before. And maybe there's a, a group of friends that I have that are interested in speculating on this and they want to have skin in the game on, on whether or not my resting heart rate is going to keep on going lower, it's going to reach some threshold. Um, this is a, a little bit more difficult to do because, you know, I am an individual that whose actions can affect their heart, resting heart rate. And so maybe I have an incentive one way or another to, to throw the prediction market. Um, but, but still an interesting idea nonetheless. And I'll, I'll leave it at that and let you react. Yeah. So that's, that's super interesting. There's, I think there's no doubt that, uh, we're going to use more and more prediction markets. It's super interesting to see what, uh, Augur is, is doing on, on decentralized prediction markets. And, uh, 
it's not it's not super fast right now, but it's going to get faster and faster. And we're going to start using those prediction market in in many different uh, places. And uh, you know, for you know, in the end, an insurance. What is an insurance? An insurance is a is a prediction on on your a health insurance is is a prediction on on your health. So we already have prediction markets uh, about health, and maybe. I know that you you tweeted that uh, I think uh, you know a few days ago. The fact that um, people aren't really aware uh, of the terms of their insurance, and if they were more aware of the fact that if they are in uh, in a healthier shape, they would they would pay much less in their insurance policy. Maybe that it would give them an incentive to. Uh, to do better in terms of of health, and it's uh, you know it's 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 good for both. It's good for the insurance and it's good for for their uh, for their own life. So um, I'm curious if you have uh, if you have more ideas on this. Yeah, the I think the tweet you're referring to is just the observation that most people don't understand their insurance uh, in America, and most people don't know that they have high deductibles, and the you know, the behavioral economics that justifies offering high deductible plans um, is based on the, the premise that people won't seek as much care because they have a high deductible, right? But uh, I think that this falls apart if people do not understand that they don't have a high deductible because it's not going to fa- affect their behavior. So this like vast, complex machine that we've patched together in America for health insurance is undermining uh its very goals because uh, because it's not legible and people people can't understand it. Uh, and I, I think you're right. Like the ultimate, the holy grail is if we could create incentive systems uh, that would incentivize people to be more healthy. Maybe prediction markets are, are one of those. It's, it's not really clear. Maybe there are other things from crypto could um, could help us as well. But it's it's still a big unsolved problem. It is, and the, the question of insurance and healthcare in the United States is is absolutely crazy. Uh, I was I was not aware of it uh, for a long time, and I believe last year I started uh, reading about uh, insurances in the United States, and I couldn't believe it. Like uh, you see people going to the to the hospital for a few days, and getting bills of hundreds of thousands of U.S. dollars, and uh, actually uh, medical bills is the first cause of bankruptcy in the United States. And the, the, the whole system is just uh, unbelievable. Yeah, it is remarkable. I mean, it's uh, there's a good word that was described it, uh, cladocracy. I think that's the word of just like a patch of different things with no underlying principles behind the system. And I recently read this book um, called An American Sickness by Elizabeth Rosenthal. And the book was talking about why healthcare was broken and uh, a bunch of the different parts of healthcare that didn't work very well. And it all basically boiled down to either misaligned incentives or unintended consequences of regulation. Uh, you're right. It, it, it's not working well. It's not immediately clear to me what the, the best path forward is. I think sometimes about how how much we pay for our care compared to the rest of the world and um, how companies need to get paid for the work that they're doing uh, to innovate and do R&D. And in effect, the U.S. is subsidizing 
this R&D work because we pay way more for our care, for our drugs than the rest of the world does, right? But if exactly you know, sudden tomorrow um, we were to cut the amount of money that we spend on healthcare by 50%, then a lot of that giant subsidy that America is paying right or wrong uh, for our healthcare that ends up going towards helping um, pay for some R&D would go away and we might see less innovation than we saw before. So it, it, it's, it's a hard problem. And I don't really know what the easy solutions are, if, if there are any. So it, it really goes back to the to the question of uh, Irum's uh, law versus uh, Moore's law. So uh, Moore's law is the, the observation that the number of transistors in a, in a dense integrated circuit doubles about every two years. And Irum's law is basically the opposite, and it's the observation that drug discovery is becoming slower and more expensive uh, over time. And so it really goes back about this problem of, of spending and it's getting more and more expensive to develop uh, new drugs. And if, if we don't manage to fix this problem, uh, we already see, for example, in the United States that the lifespan is receding for, uh, I believe, four years in a row. So, uh, you know, we had a lot of progress in the, in the past decades, but right now it's not progressing anymore. So... Uh, as you tweeted, Irum's law uh, is not valid anymore for the last two years, I think. And I'm curious if you think that it's it's a trend that's going to continue in the in the same direction, or if it's just uh, something that's going to then go back to the to the initial trend of uh, doubling uh, the the cost every two years. I mean, nothing is certain, right? Everything happens because individuals go out uh, and make it happen or small groups of people do. Uh, so it, it won't happen unless people go out and spend the time and, and work hard to, to make it happen. Um, but I, I think we probably will at least plateau with Irun's law. Um, the tweet that you're talking about referred to a study and within the study, they highlighted these three factors, if I recall correctly, that we have more information about the molecules that we're testing. Like, um, genome-wide association studies were done uh, early on in clinical development and were better at using that information. Um, so companies reported to the authors that their R&D programs uh, had better decision-making mechanisms now. And then regulatory uh, thresholds for approval had changed and it had been easier to get a drug approved now. And I don't think any of those things have, have receded from the place where they were, say, 10 years ago. So you would, you would expect, uh, expect E-Room's law to have plateaued and the cost of making a drug to be relatively the same to when they had made it during the study. I think the, the big question is if um, what will happen to the biotech industry in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic and whether we'll see... Uh, proliferation of innovation and progress in the same way that we saw crypto rise out of the ashes of the financial crisis. And you exactly. know, so who will the biotech industry's Satoshi Nakamoto be? <laughs> and uh, will COVID-19 be the, the iPhone moment for uh, biotech and, uh, and aging and longevity? That's, that's the question. Whether it's going to really uh, push, push more progress in the field. I mean, maybe we've we've basically pulled a vaccine out of our back pocket within less than a year, right? 
I remember the reading back in March and April about vaccine timelines and like reviewing how long it had taken to develop vaccines for the past 40 years or something. And, um, you know, post-World War II, uh, in the 40s, 50s, 60s, it took four or five years. And then from like the 70s, I think until 2020, it took far longer, a decade or something. But we seem to have managed to do it. Uh, and maybe this is an indication that progress within the life sciences is restarting uh, or temporarily catalyzed by this crisis. The question is, is if the unique um, confluence of factors that have led to that is going to stay or is still applicable. If you have a bunch of it scientists and, and it's just like a matter of will, if people are working really hard, then um, maybe, or, or culture perhaps, then maybe that doesn't stay around after we've uh, got a vaccine and therapeutics that make the COVID-19 pandemic not as, not as dangerous anymore. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And when it comes to progress and, and innovation, I really think that uh, there is no, uh, we cannot understand bef- what's going to be the duration because it, it really depends on the energy we put in the, in the project. When you see the, the, the Manhattan Project or, uh, or the, the Apollo program, for example, you see um, like these, these two tremendous programs where so many resources were put in uh, one specific goal, like going to the moon and developing the atomic bomb. And it's just uh, amazing projects in terms of, uh, of, of efficacy and, and efficiency. And right now with the, with the vaccine, we kind of see that this thing is still possible. We still have it within us. And uh, us as human beings, we're, we can really be uh, both incredible and also really uh, really bad in, in some other moments. And uh, it's really up to us to, um, to really be, uh, to remain these, uh, these incredible people and, and do these, uh, these innovations. I, I agree. I was listening to um, one of Palladium's podcasts. I'm trying to remember what the name of the author was. Uh, I, I, I don't remember off the top of my head, but they were talking about the Apollo space program. And um, one of the gentlemen that had written a book on the subject remarked that at the time, the Apollo space program was like a whole of society effort in that it was so widespread and so many people contributed in so um, in some way that it touched everyone's lives in one way or another. And I think you have an analogy um, of that for COVID-19 and this pandemic as well, in that it's, it's the only thing after that that I can think of where we've mobilized our entire society uh, to fight this this pandemic and all of our resources, all of our politics were singularly focused on the pandemic for some point. Um, and Bruno Messias remarked that it gave you a sense of what was possible for politics. And I, I think that's a, a pretty hopeful message, actually. I think it's it's both uh, beautiful and sad. Like uh, the fact that we can do it uh, is beautiful, but the fact that it it really seems hard to imagine how we could do it in a different context, like not a context of a pandemic, just for example, on, on climate change or something that's, uh, that has a different uh, time frame or uh, like working on, on different uh, very ambitious projects. It's, it's really hard uh, with the current society and the Western society especially to imagine having the whole society behind these, these 
these gigantic and, and beautiful projects for the future. Because everyone is living their own life and they don't necessarily care about uh, uh, progress and, and, and innovation. Some people do, of course. But, uh, you know, with, with the rise of the individual and, uh, you know, having your own life and having your own um, interest, and, and that's, that's beautiful, of course. But we also lost, uh, I believe we lost a certain ability to, uh, to be all uh, together in, uh, in the pursuit of, of uh, one goal for, for society. And uh, when you see, for example, uh, society, a society like China, you feel that they still have it. They still have it really strong that they can all unite uh, behind uh, uh, a common goal. Yeah, I, and maybe, maybe, maybe not. It's, it's not immediately clear to me what um, the Chinese uh, people think, and I just don't have like a lot, a lot of legibility into what what is actually happening within China, how people feel about it on the ground. Uh, despite actually trying for a little bit. And I think the counterpoint to what you were saying about individualism and personal responsibility is that we managed to do this anyway with the Apollo space program to return to what we were talking about a couple of minutes ago. So I don't think that yeah. it's necessary. I don't think it's uh, necessarily impossible for us to have this highly individualistic culture and pursue big ambitious goals at, at the same time. I agree with you, but since uh, since the Apollo program that uh, was like in the in the seventies and sixties seventies, uh, we didn't have uh, another Apollo program. But uh, let's see. I mean, uh, maybe the the, the COVID nineteen uh, vaccine is going to be uh, our Apollo program, and uh, I really hope so. I really hope so. I'm I'm very uh, optimistic when it comes to uh, to the future. So uh, I, I believe in. Uh, in, in our abilities to really uh, create a, a beautiful future. But uh, yeah, tell me. Yeah, I, I agree. And, you know, we both have optimists in our, um, in our Twitter bios, I think, uh, and always learning too. So I, I agree. I'm, I'm a very optimistic person. I have a lot of optimism about the future. Uh, but I, I do share your observation that we haven't made as much progress since the 70s and we don't have another Apollo program for our age. Uh, but I think I would push back on the notion that this is a result of an individualistic culture specifically. I want to move to uh, philosophy and, and, and books to, uh, to finish the, the conversation. And I, want, I, I know that you're a, a big fan of uh, Kierkegaard's uh, writings and I wanted to ask yep. you uh, why is that uh, I don't know a lot of people that are uh, a big fan of, of his work um, so I just wanted to know why do you like so much in, 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 in his work yeah it's a good question I think Kierkegaard uh, Kierkegaard starts with um, his lived experience, and he writes about the lived experience. He was called uh, a philosopher of the heart, the kind of person that anyone could read and relate what Kierkegaard was writing to their life. He's not writing really abstract, far away stuff that um, you know is, is only conceptual, but instead talking about individuals, their experiences, and how they should live their lives. And so it's, it's much more real and applicable to me than, um, than other forms of philosophy. 
And Kierkegaard tackles head first the difficult questions that a person encounters in their life. You know, who am I? How should I live my life? How should I deal with uh, anxiety, depression, and despair? Um, what, is, what does faith mean? And what does it mean to have um, a relationship to faith? And these are questions that by dealing with them in uh, a lived way, I think you can still find a lot of insight in even today. And you can, uh, last thing on that note is, um, you know, what I was saying earlier about Elon and, and uh, sitting with your anxiety uh, is basically taken straight from Kierkegaard's fear and trembling, right? And this is just one example of how you can take something that a Danish philosopher wrote in the 19th century and apply it to the experiences of entrepreneurs and you and I today. There is so much uh, wisdom to be learned in uh, in philosophy. That's uh, that's just incredible. I was uh, listening to uh, to Seneca's letter to uh, Lucilius, and uh, you know it's the the Stoics uh, philosophy. It's something that uh, I already read, and you know you, I know the basics of of the, the Stoics, but it's just I feel so important to be reminded of those principles and then to have them uh, within your life all the time. Like this is not just something that you read once. I feel that there really is a need for uh, philosophy as a as something that's always with you, the, because those thinkers really uh, ask the right questions, and I think is the most important asking the questions and. Uh, being aware that uh, you know it, it's hard for everyone, and uh, we all have the same questions, and uh, I think that, that the way to uh, to a great life is is to accept those questions and and uh, sit with them. You know, just uh, accept that sometimes it's uh, it's going to be hard, and just uh, learn from from the wisdom of of those people. Yeah, I agree, and I think. If you can ask those questions of how do I live my life, of um, you know what's my relationship to faith, and how do I sit with bad emotions, etc. These these are the sort of things that uh, Kierkegaard mused on. And if you can get those answers right for yourself, then it unlocks an incredible potential, uh, and it can help you be the type of person that you were meant to be. So one last question for uh, for today. I know that you read a lot and uh, we read actually a lot of the same books. I wanted to ask you uh, uh, some book recommendations and especially the the, the underrated stuff. Like uh, a lot of people read uh, a lot of the same books and I wanted to ask you for some uh, hidden stuff that you have for us. I think that I will return to Kierkegaard in this too. I think a really underrated book is Kierkegaard's Fear and Trembling, where he's writing through a pseudonym about the story of Abraham being asked to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. And in this story, Kierkegaard explores themes of faith, commitment, of anxiety, the inward motions that people make, and he's trying to prod his readers into thinking really hard about whether they have faith and whether they can go through the same motions that Abraham did. And one of the themes of this book, in addition to that, is the, the limits of reason, these inexplicable forces in our life that seem to pull us towards 
ideas or, or things or um, and for Abraham he certainly did this in the case of putting what God asked him to do over reason right because he was willing to sacrifice his only son and it was only an angel asking him at the last moment that was the reason why his son uh, didn't die by his hand and in reading this and Kierkegaard ex exploring these ideas you have to ask yourself what are the limits of reason in your life what are the passions that you have are there things that seem irrational to everyone else that you're willing to pursue and are you willing to risk everything in pursuit of these you're relating this back to the conversation that we had earlier are you willing to sit with the loneliness the anxiety the doubt through years that comes with pursuing an irrational idea uh, that may be misunderstood as Abraham had to and as some of the entrepreneurs that, that we talked about earlier in our conversation had to so I think this is this is a great book would, would recommend it a little bit difficult to get through at times the the second book that I would recommend that I think is underrated is Daniel Carpenter's Reputation and Power. It's this long book um, on the history of pharmaceutical regulation and how it came into its modern form. And the first thing it does is give you a good explanation of pharmaceutical regulation over history and uh, a sense of why things are done, why they did, and sort of the historical contingencies that drove some of these decisions. And then second, it gives you a new lens to think about pharmaceutical regulators' actions, uh, and that, that lens is seeing them as being driven by their reputation as opposed to something like uh, their actions being driven by industry where you think that there is a revolving door and the FDA commissioner is maybe in the pocket of, of industry or, or, or something like this. They approve too many or the wrong kind of drugs. Or the alternative view being that uh, the FDA is some heartless bureaucrats that don't approve enough drugs. If you see instead that there's this reputation that um, the FDA wants to uphold and, and that's a source of power for them, and it's really illuminating uh, and certainly, I think, really applicable today on the eve of a COVID-19 vaccine. And I will leave it at that. That's beautiful. Beautiful books. I uh, really look forward to, uh, to getting to uh, Kierkegaard. Uh, you really sold me uh, his work, so uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna look into that. And uh, thank you so much for your time, Robert. It was a phenomenal discussion as always. Uh, really like uh, how you think and, and your ideas. Uh, thank you so much for uh, being on the Long Game Podcast. Thank you so much. It was a lot of fun. I liked your questions and conversation that we had. Looking forward to hearing other episodes of the Long Game. Hey again, it's Meji. Before you leave, I want to tell you about what we're building at Lifetizer. When it comes to health, Lifetizer believes in prevention and optimization. There's no reason to guess what works for you anymore when you can read the messages your body tries to tell you. At Lifetizer, we help people optimize their blood glucose levels through nutrition and exercise to improve how you feel, how you sleep, to get better health and optimize your longevity. Check it out at lifetizer.io and sign up for early access to the private beta. That's all for today, friends, and thank you so much for listening.